0: This is The Guardian.
1: Today, in black and white, a conspiracy to overturn the 2020 presidential election and what it means for 2024.
2: So by the time that Jack Smith, the special counsel who is overseeing the twin federal prosecutions of Donald Trump, comes into the seventh floor Justice Department conference room, all the reporters in the room have already read the indictment. What they want to really hear
1: from is from the top prosecutor himself. Hugo Lau is a reporter with Guardian US, based in Washington, D.C. He kind of sweeps in
2: with these three protective detail entourages, and he gets the podium. Good evening. Today, an indictment was unsealed, charging Donald J. Trump with conspiring to defraud the United States, conspiring to disenfranchise voters, and conspiring and attempting to obstruct an official proceeding. You know, he's famously a man of few words. He, you know, previously has worked on cases at The Hague prosecuting war crimes. He looks like this very serious guy. He has this dark beard, speckled with gray hairs, and he looks dead ahead. And he essentially says that Trump lied to the American people. And Trump's lies and Trump's efforts to overturn the election were crimes against the American people. Lies by the defendant, targeted at obstructing a bedrock function of the U.S. government, The nation's process of collecting, counting and certifying the results of the
1: presidential election. The indictment handed down on Tuesday isn't Donald Trump's first. He's already facing court for payments to an adult film actress, Stormy Daniels, and for keeping classified documents at his house in Florida. They're serious charges, but still. Paying off a porn star? Leaving documents in a bathroom at Mar-a-Lago? You can still shake your head and think, this guy. But this one this indictment feels different. The alleged conspiracy it lays out over 45 pages. It's really chilling.
2: I think this one stands apart, even considering Trump's two earlier indictments. You know, when Trump was charged in the New York hush money case, that was for conduct before he was president. When he was charged in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case, that was for conduct after he was president. This is the first indictment that has been brought against the former president for his actions while in office. And I think that speaks volumes for how momentous a day this is, not just for the country, but also for the American justice system.
1: From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, the front-runner for next year's US presidential election and his alleged plot to steal the last one. Hugo, this indictment tells a story that many of us by now might be familiar with, except here the whole thing is laid out in clinical, forensic and incredibly damning detail. Take us through that story. So... Right on
2: election night, Trump starts to hear that he might have lost the election. All right, welcome back. This is CNN's special live coverage, 10.31 a.m. on the East Coast. Why am I giving you the time? Well, if you managed to sleep last night, things changed. You may have gone to bed thinking this election was headed one way,
1: and then you woke up and you saw things were different and maybe trending, trending increasingly in another direction. Phil Mattingly at the
2: and United he goes Hall. up to... to one of the higher floors in the White House and he consults with his war room. And his war room basically tells him that he's lost the election. But Trump doesn't take that message kindly. And he almost immediately calls up Rudy Giuliani, his friend, and says, we need to find a way to make sure that I come out on top.
0: Hmm.
2: What happens next is... Rudy Giuliani enlists several of his allies, including conservative legal scholar John Eastman. And together with Trump, they start to develop a way to litigate their way out of election defeat.
1: Interesting. So they decide we may not win this on the vote, so we need to find another way for Donald Trump to remain president. What do they do?
2: Well, immediately Trump fixes on this idea that there has been election fraud, and goes about trying to find evidence to fit his beliefs.
1: In a stunning display from a sitting president, Donald Trump launching an assault on the integrity of the election, unleashing a barrage of false claims of fraud and corruption without evidence. If you count the legal votes,
0: I easily win. If you count the illegal votes, they can try to steal the election from us.
2: Trump cannot find the evidence he needs. Rudy Giuliani has a lot of conspiracy theories and a lot of pseudo-evidence from rumors, from misinterpreted surveillance footage from CCTV cameras. And he basically packages them and sends them to Trump and says, look, there is all this fraud going on. This is clear instance of why we need audit. We clearly need new recounts. We might even need a rerun of the election. Wow.
0: The 50 to 60 witnesses we have for the way they were treated and not allowed to inspect the ballots. They weren't just um, not
2: allowed to do it. They were pushed. few cases, they were assaulted. But they are really all just conspiracy theories. And as the indictment notes, even the Trump campaign knew that what Rudy Giuliani was peddling was fundamentally false. And Mm. there's a very choice quote that comes out about how one senior advisor says this is this conspiracy bullshit being beamed from the mothership.
1: Right. So they decide the message to broadcast is this election was fraudulent and it needs to be potentially rerun. But that's not the only route they're going down. They're also trying to lobby election officials in different battleground states. Tell me about that.
2: One avenue that he pursues is to pressure the state legislatures and the heads of each state to see if they will just rerun the election or just find him votes, as he infamously tells Brad Raffensperger, the secretary of state Georgia, who is the top elections officials there. The people of Georgia are angry. The people of the country are angry. And there's nothing wrong with saying that, that you've recalculated. Well, Mr. President,
0: the challenge that you have is the data you have is wrong.
2: Look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find 11,780 votes, which is one more that we have. Trump also gets a sympathetic ear from a official at the Justice Department who's called Jeffrey Clark and we believe is one of the co-conspirators unnamed in the indictment. He's very sympathetic to Trump's claims of fraud in the election, and he starts going around his superiors. And what Trump wants the Justice Department to do at the time is for them to announce that there has been significant fraud in the election, sufficient for the Justice Department to open investigations, because that would give his whole allegation that there have been fraud much more credibility. The problem for Trump was DOJ was refusing to do it, not least because DOJ does not have the authority to go into individual states and to conduct investigations into elections. That's not the DOJ's job. But Jeff Clark, under the promise of being named acting attorney general, he basically agrees that he would draft a letter that says, for instance, in Georgia, there is significant fraud that could determine the outcome of the election in that state and that the Justice Department is investigating when the Justice Department was conducting no such investigation. In fact, the indictment refers to it as sham election investigations.
1: Interesting. So Trump is desperate to give the impression that this election was rigged and this indictment alleges he's turning to people like Jeff Clark inside the Department of Justice, which is supposed to be independent, to help him do that. But they're throwing the whole kitchen sink at this thing and there's another avenue that they're going down. So tell me about that. They
2: settle on this plan instead of trying to rerun votes or to find new ballots that might not have been counted. They decide to go down a legal route and see if they can kind of game the system. And this is where they find this thing that is now being dubbed the fake elector's plot.
1: Uh Aha, the fake elector's plot, which, according to the indictment, may have been the idea of that conservative legal scholar you mentioned earlier, John Eastman. Take me through that plot.
2: In presidential elections, the results are certified state by state, and each state sends a certificate, essentially, that says the results of the state of, for instance, Pennsylvania, go to Joe Biden. And the process involves basically having a number of designated people who are called electors sign this slate and kind of attest that they were witnesses to the true result of the election, the top election official in the state, typically the secretary of state or the governor. Stamps it and then sends it off to Congress. So basically, this was how it was managed in the pre internet days, you know, when everything was communicated back and forth from Washington on horseback. This has survived into the modern era, and this is still how elections are technically certified state by state. John Eastman's plan was to create these, what he dubbed alternate states of electors, essentially fraudulent pieces of paper. In some instances he would have fraudulent state seals on them. And his plan was to send those certificates to Congress in order to dupe Mike Pence, the vice president, who assumes a ceremonial role during the congressional certification, into thinking that the results were contested, when in reality they weren't contested at all.
1: This is all pretty breathtaking. Like, this is a complicated plan, but basically Eastman is allegedly saying, let's send these fake slates to Congress and hope that nobody realizes that they're fake and it muddies the process and potentially Trump can stay in office just a little bit longer.
2: The whole point, in essence, was to push the congressional certification date, which had been set for January 6th, beyond that date. Because in doing so, it puts it into a legal and constitutional grey area where there's no textual or case law basis really to determine how to proceed if there is a contested election beyond January 6th.
1: And so why didn't this plan work? Why didn't these fake slates derail the whole process as the Trump team intended?
2: Mike Pence refused to take them because around that time, what was happening simultaneously was... Trump was trying to implore Pence into not only accepting the slates, but to say that the result of the election was in dispute, when Mike Pence knew very well that it was not in dispute. And he told Trump, and this is kind of recounted in the indictment, that he did not think he had the power to change the result.
1: Interesting. So this plan hits a lot of hurdles, but one of the biggest ones it hits is that the vice president at the time, Mike Pence, says this is kind of ridiculous. I'm not going to go along with it. And I don't have the authority to go along with it, even if I wanted to. How does his boss, Donald Trump, respond?
2: Trump responds badly. Trump kind of shouts at Pence. He insults him. He says he is the P word. He says he is weak. And over the course of several days leading up to January 6th, there is this enormous pressure campaign on Pence to do Trump this one last favor. And As described in the indictment, there is a very uh, now infamous meeting on January 5 between Trump, Pence, John Eastman, and uh, Pence's top aides, where John Eastman says, Mike, you have the power to do this. And Trump says, listen to John. And Mike is steadfast and says, I don't have the authority, and I'm not going to do what you want me to do tomorrow. Wow. That night, Trump decides that he's going to announce to the world that Pence does have the authority, despite everything he has heard, despite Pence's own objections, that if Pence does the right thing, then I can be president again.
1: And of course, January six ends up being a historic day in the country for all the wrong reasons. What happens that day?
2: Well, Trump gives a speech in the morning, as we have now since learned from other prosecutions, Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers far-right extremist groups. They were waiting at the barricades at the foot of Capitol Hill very, very early in the morning, around 7 or 8 a.m., and their sole intention was to storm the building. Trump delivers a speech. Because if Mike Pence does the right thing, we win the election. States want to revote. The states got defrauded. They were given false information. They voted on it.
0: Now they want to recertify. They want it back. All Vice President Pence has to do is send it back to the states, to recertify.
2: And Trump, of course, says if Mike Pence does the right thing, then I can be present again.
0: We fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore.
2: And when news trickles out in the mid afternoon to the crowd outside the Capitol, they'd already overcome the barricades and they were already on the construction that had started for the inaugural platform, that Pence has not, in fact, stopped the certification. It infuriates the crowd. And so, according to the indictment, Trump doubles down. He pushes more claims of false election fraud allegations. He pushes more incendiary rhetoric. He has his surrogates do the same, so that the crowd is even more incited. And the actions of the crowd and the riot actually do stop the certification.
0: It's not about the good people of Arizona. And it will
1: stand in recess until the call of the chair. We'll pause. Protesters are in the building. Thank you.
2: And that passage in the indictment about how Trump did nothing to call off the attack from inside the White House, but actually exacerbated the situation to continue to further obstruct the congressional certification is the crux of the obstruction charge that he is being hit with in D.C.
1: Hugo, we've heard bits and pieces of this story before, though. Never in one place, never in this much detail – and it's worth saying that the Trump campaign has released a statement saying, this is nothing more than the latest corrupt chapter in the continued pathetic attempt by the Biden crime family and their weaponized Department of Justice to interfere with the 2024 presidential election. It goes on to say, in which President Trump is the undisputed frontrunner and leading by substantial margins. But going through the indictment, what about it was new to your eyes? Jeff Clark,
2: on the morning of January 3, he meets with the Deputy White House Counsel. The Deputy White House Counsel reiterates that if Trump remained in office, even though there had not been any election fraud, there would be, quote, riots in every major city in the United States, to which Jeff Clark responds, well, that's why there's an insurrection act.
1: Meaning if there's protests, we have the legal power to crush them
2: not only the legal power to crush them, but to use the National Guard to suppress riots. It would be an extraordinary form of martial law. And to think that that was where Jeff Clark's mind was, three days before January 6, is an extraordinary revelation that the indictment unearthed.
1: Hugo, the prosecutor is at pains to spell out very clearly that Trump was told by several people repeatedly that the claims he was making publicly were untrue. He says at one point the claims were false and the defendant, Trump, knew that they were false. That he was notified repeatedly that his claims were untrue, often by the people he relied on for candid advice on important matters, but he deliberately disregarded the truth. What is the significance of making that point over and over again in this indictment
2: There is always going to be a mens rea element to all these criminal cases Did Trump know what he was doing was wrong and prosecutors in this case charged that Trump knew at his core that what he was doing was wrong because he had been told by everyone around him that he had lost the election, and that there was no fraud sufficient to change the outcome. He was told, just as a short list, by the White House counsel, the head of the Intelligence Committee, the head of CISA, the agency charged with making sure that elections in the United States are secure, his family members, other people on the Trump campaign. And the special counsel's argument is essentially that Trump was in willful denial, and that feeds directly into the charge and in the indictment about Trump repeating these false claims of election fraud, because not only did he knew they were wrong because he was being taught it, but then he was disseminating them further. And those claims were what spurred the capital attack, among other things.
1: Right. So if Trump tries to make the argument that, yes, I did all these things, but I did them because I really sincerely believe the election was stolen. Basically, this whole indictment is built in such a way to show that that cannot have been true. There is no way you could have believed these things were true in the face of so many people saying otherwise.
2: I mean, to an extent, Trump can and probably will make that argument trial.
0: Well, I assume you're confident you can win this case. Absolutely, we're going to win. Yeah, would you at a minimum say You'd like to see this resolved before the election. I want to get to all the evidence. I want to have a chance to present our case to a jury. This is the first time that the First Amendment has been criminalized. It's the first time that a sitting president is attacking a political opponent on First Amendment grounds and basically making a criminal to, to, to state your position and to engage in political out And
2: it will be up to a jury in D.C. to determine whether that is a sound legal defense or not. The problem for Trump is at least one of the charges here doesn't really take into consideration the mens rea element. The obstruction and conspiracy to obstruct that has been brought against essentially all of the low-level rioters who stormed the Capitol on January 6th, the operative phrase in that statute is corrupt purpose. Whether Trump believed that the election was stolen or not, doesn't give him a defense. Principally, it's saying, did Trump advance unlawful ways in order to get himself when he wanted? It doesn't matter if you believe the claims or not. He could believe that the moon was made of cheese. But if he used the claims that the moon was made of cheese to get people to storm the Capitol or to incite people to storm the Capitol or to get members of Congress to stop the certification— then that is a crime. Mm. And if that led to the obstruction of an official proceeding, i.e. the congressional certification, then that is a crime.
1: Interesting. But as part of this, there are crimes where it doesn't matter what Trump really thought. It all comes down to what he actually did and what happened next. Right. But it's going to be a tricky one because of the way trials work. You
2: need a unanimous jury to determine beyond a reasonable doubt that Trump committed these crimes. All it takes is one juror to say, you know what, I sympathize with Trump. There may well have been fraud in the election. There were certainly irregularities, because there were and there always are, and people were just being naysayers to him and they were blocking him at every term and he was just trying to do what he thought was right and so I'm going to acquit him. And if there's one person that says that,
1: he's going to be acquitted. Mm. And of course, polls show us that a frightening number of Americans do believe Trump's claims that the election may have been stolen. The
2: difference with D.C. is that the D.C. Drew pool is predominantly Democratic skewed. D.C. is a very Democratic city. In fact, so much so that the Trump campaign is basically anticipating that Trump will be convicted in this case. For no other reason than just, oh, D.C. is predominantly Democratic. He's going to be convicted even if he was Mother Teresa.
1: Hugo, this indictment lists 6 unindicted co-conspirators, people who were allegedly involved but who haven't been charged just yet. And there's been speculation over who they might be, and it's worth saying that all of those named have previously denied any wrongdoing, including Rudy Giuliani, who called the indictment an outrage and one of the biggest attacks by the US government on free speech. But If he suspects them of wrongdoing, why hasn't the prosecutor named any of these people, these co-conspirators, or actually indicted them yet?
2: It's a good question. The kind of conduct that they are described as taking parts in make it sound like they will be charged, not least because a lot of what Trump is being accused of, they did as well in furtherance of Trump's aims and alongside Trump. It could be for various reasons that they haven't been charged yet. One of the prevailing views in Washington right now is Jack Smith, the special counsel, was trying to get this indictment in before the end of the summer because he is very acutely aware of the political calendar that is coming around the corner. If he indicts now, he might be able to get to trial before the spring of next year. And if he can get the trial in before the Republican convention next summer, and definitely before the election in November, then that is preferable for him. By not adding co-conspirators, it streamlines that process. The moment you have multiple defendants in a case and you have all of their lawyers, all of their scheduling issues, it becomes a lot more complicated. And the ability for that trial to get pushed back is greatly exacerbated. So I wonder if this is actually a way for Jack Smith to get in before the election.
1: And so fast forward to a trial at some point in 2024. What happens if Trump is found guilty? What kind of penalties is he facing? Trump's facing four counts. Conspiracy
2: to defraud the United States, which is punishable by up to five years in prison. Conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, which is punishable by up to 20 years in prison. Obstruction of an official proceeding, again, punishable by up to 20 years in prison. And conspiracy against rights, which is punishable by up to 10 years in prison. Hmm. But judges also have a fair degree of attitude in handing down sentences. Trump's case has been assigned to Tanya Tritkan, who is a U.S. District Court judge for the District of Columbia. That is bad news for Trump. Tritcan has been one of the tougher judges in D.C. on January 6th defendant cases. In fact, in some instances, she has applied longer sentences than what prosecutors have asked for in some of the rioter cases. And she has expressed this general view that she finds what happened on January 6th to be a stain on democracy.
1: It's incredible that there is a very credible scenario that within the year, this judge could be deciding how much jail time to give Donald Trump, whether it's five years, 10 years longer, like that could happen.
2: It could. And it's in real uncharted territory, right? I don't know if anyone knows how this is going to play out because it's kind of extraordinary to think that a judge might sentence the likely Republican nominee for president to jail before the election. If this trial comes before the Republican nomination and Trump is elected the nominee, that's kind of one thing. If Trump is sentenced to jail after he's become the nominee, I think that would be like a real problem. (laughs) Like Trump as the nominee would need to campaign. He would have to hold all these rallies. He'd have to go to debates. The feasibility and the practicality of all of this has not really been worked out or even thought about, I think, by anyone yet.
1: Coming up with Trump leading the Republican race while facing three criminal trials, what is 2024 possibly going to look like?
0: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash today in focus today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, slash today in focus.
1: Hugo, 2024 is shaping up as a busy year for Donald Trump. He's going to be facing potentially three criminal trials, at least. At the same time, he's going to be running for president. How is that going to work? How is he going to go to a debate on Monday, to Iowa Tuesday, and then to court on, on one of these cases Wednesday? Like, How is any of that going to play out? Well, he's got a private jet,
2: so that helps. Sure, okay. Trump force one, as he calls it. He does have the ability to travel pretty quickly, and I think it is worth noting that the American legal system waits for no one. If you are commanded to appear before a judge at a hearing or at trial or any matter, then you are required to be there, and failure to appear will be treated as contempt of court. Now, I think most judges will also be cognizant of the political schedule and will make accommodations for him so that it is not the case that he has to appear in court, you know, an hour after He has a debate or an hour after he has a rally. But there may be instances in which he has to reschedule his schedule around the court's timetable because he is the defendant here. And if he doesn't do that, I think some of the judges are going to get very irritated with him. You know, you don't want to get on the wrong side of the judge. You know, they have a lot of discretion.
1: This is all completely insane on some level, that we're even having this discussion of how Trump's going to fit his presidential campaigning around the very serious criminal charges he's facing. Can he even be elected president if he's convicted of these crimes?
2: Yes, he can. It's very difficult to remove someone from running for election to the highest office in the land. It is basically enshrined in the Constitution. Being convicted of the crimes that he is currently charged in would not preclude him from running and it would not preclude him from assuming a second term. I think it's important to remember, though, that it's extraordinary only because Trump made it extraordinary. He is running because he knew the legal troubles were coming for him. And he thought by announcing his candidacy last year, he could preempt the Justice Department and basically create this narrative that, oh, they're only prosecuting me now because I'm running. Well, they were going to prosecute him anyway, because these investigations have been going on for a very long time. And he is also running so that if he does become president, he can expunge at least the federal cases against him. Hmm. If he becomes president, so the thinking goes, he will appoint someone he likes as attorney general. He can then direct that attorney general, who is the top law enforcement officer in the country, to drop the cases against him. And that is almost certainly what he will do. He would technically have the ability to do that. And he knows he has the ability to do that, which is kind of why he's running.
1: I mean, that is... An incredible scenario to consider, and this week a New York Times poll found that Trump is more than 35 points ahead of his nearest rival in the Republican primaries, Ron DeSantis, and he's absolutely crushing the other candidates too. Will this week's indictment hurt him in those primaries, or actually is it going to boost his popularity? After the first two indictments,
2: Trump's polling rose, his fundraising numbers rose. The expectation inside the Trump campaign is that after indictment number three and you know potentially number four, it won't be as novel anymore. I don't think it certainly helps in gain any votes in the presidential, in the general election. But as a whole, every time he gets indicted, the effect it has on the rest of the Republican field is they all get asked about it. And if they don't give the quote unquote correct response for the wider MAGA base, then they are going to be penalized for their response. I think you saw that with DeSantis quite recently when, and this was before the indictment, but he condemned Trump's response on January 6th. And the immediate reaction from the Trump campaign was to say, wow, you know, you're parroting Democratic talking points, mm. you're parroting Liz Cheney and the January 6th committee. And sure enough, his numbers went down and Trump's poll numbers rose.
1: Hugo, this is a story of an alleged criminal conspiracy like no other in American history. But reading through the indictment, I was also struck by the fact that we've even reached this point, that Donald Trump was the president and he tried to break the country's political system, break the rule of law in America. And now that law is coming for him, it's reasserting itself. And as well as this being a story of how vulnerable America's system is, in a way, is it also a story of how resilient it is? I think Trump pushed
2: the Justice Department one step too far. I think the combination of his hoarding of task documents and refusing to comply with the subpoena and the government's efforts to retrieve them, along with his actions from election night through to January 6th, those two incidents pushed the Justice Department to the brink. Then when Trump went and announced that he was running in November, preempting any sort of action by the Justice Department to say this was a witch hunt, it basically gave Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, no choice but to appoint a special counsel. And the special counsel that was chosen was Jack Smith. Jack Smith is this guy who built up his career in the public integrity section at DOJ, then went to the International Criminal Court and prosecuted war criminals. Trump basically got himself the most aggressive prosecutor DOJ could have probably have found. And I think for the first time in his life, he's found an adversary which might
1: just beat him. Hugo, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Hugo Lowell, who is All over this story, and you can read his coverage of it at theguardian.com. Before we go, this month marks 60 years since the famous March on Washington, which led in part to the passing of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. Listen to this week's episode of Politics Weekly America as Jonathan Friedland sits down with Reverend Al Sharpton to discuss why he believes Martin Luther King's famous I Have a Dream speech has been abused by some on the right, and why he's still fighting for police reform, and how the godfather of soul, James Brown, was so influential on his life. That's Politics Weekly America and it's out today and that is it for today. This episode was produced by Courtney Youssef and Tom Glasser. Sound design was by Solomon King. The executive producer was Elizabeth Casson. Have a great weekend. We're back Monday.
0: This is The Guardian.